Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our Heaven series with a message titled, Seeing God Face to Face. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. So many popular pictures of heaven make it seem so unlike the picture we have in our Bible. We've all heard of endless golf courses, getting whatever we want, picking Belgium chocolates from trees, the reunion with people we've known and loved, and even the idea of finally coming to terms with what life is truly all about and discovering ourselves, gaining peace with our disappointments while we were on earth, and having all our questions answered regarding the things we didn't understand. You know, even among Christians, there is this kind of unfounded speculation about heaven. But of course, the Bible does teach us about the new heavens and the new earth, about the resurrection of the body. The Bible presents us with a picture of a real country with sights and sounds and smells and tastes. And we're told we'll eat and drink in heaven. We're told about a body not subject to weakness nor aging nor disease. But all of this pales in significance to that one thing of which heaven is really all about. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Revelation 22, 3-5 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I spoke of the other things first. I mean the new heaven and the new earth and our receiving of new bodies because there is so much misinformation about heaven. I did not want us to adopt Greek philosophical views of heaven as if it were some kind of a spiritual realm devoid of physicality, for if we adopt that vision, we miss what God has prepared for us. But today, we'll be discussing the main thing. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Martin Luther once said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Does that sound surprising? Psalm 73 verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Now, of course, Martin Luther did not believe that he would be in hell with Jesus. He did, however, believe that to be without Jesus would be the ultimate in horror. And Asaph in Psalm 73 was not saying there were not other things that gave him joy. He is saying that in comparison to all other things, there simply is no competition between them and God. That's why what he really wanted out of heaven was not the body that will never tire, although he surely would have rejoiced in the news of that. But if you give him that and did not give him God, well, he was not interested. Like Paul, who would say of his ancestry, I count everything else as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Or consider Psalm 84. Verse 1 begins this way. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs yet faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Then as we go forward to verse 10, the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I begin in this fashion because there are all manner of people who seek heaven but do not seek God. They have passions in their lives, some of which are not necessarily bad on their own, but they do not seek God as their highest joy. They know so little about what David spoke out in in Psalm 27 verse 4. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. Or some have no understanding of what Moses said to God. He told him that he would lead him and the people to the promised land. And in Exodus 33, verse 15, Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Imagine saying, if your presence is not in heaven, then Lord, don't bring me up there. I have no greater desire than to gaze on your beauty. Years ago, John Piper wrote a groundbreaking book entitled Desiring God. I remember the book began with Piper stating that he wanted to stand on top of the highest building in New York City and shout out, Hedonistic America, you are not nearly hedonistic enough. You have chosen short-term pleasures that leave you with long-term pain, when the ultimate pleasure of knowing God stood before you and you would not have it. In that same book, Piper would go on to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And it is this satisfaction in God, this delight in God, this finding in God, the sole source of all pleasure, the reason for existence, the fountainhead of all that is lovely, and the consummation of all I have longed for. It is this that makes the redeemed long for heaven. Perhaps that's exactly what Paul meant when he said, to depart and be with Christ, that's better by far, for he wanted to see him for whom his soul longed. I'm reminded of Johann Frank, the German lawyer and poet and hymn writer living in the 17th century, who wanted to express the hedonistic pleasure he found in Christ and did so in the following lines. He wrote, Jesus, priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me. Long my heart hath panted till it well nigh fainted, thirsting after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb. I will suffer not to hide thee. Ask for naught beside thee. Now, I have noticed that as one reads through the book of Revelation in chapter 4, then in chapter 5, and then in chapter 7, and then in chapter 11 again, and then in chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 18, and 19, all of these chapters have lengthy expressions of praise in them. See, there can be no doubt that the life to come is filled with events in which the redeemed stand before the throne. Think of it this way. Worship is one of the great privileges that has been given us. Worship is a celebration of God. When we worship, we celebrate Him, His attributes, that is, who He is, and we celebrate what He has done. It is a party, a hedonistic feast of holy joy. But worship is also commanded. Psalm 37 verse 4 commands us, delight yourself in the Lord. This is a serious command. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. It is serious because, as Jeremy Taylor said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. Well, why would that be? Well, first of all, let's agree on this. Human beings crave happiness. See, we can't live without it. Listen to what French philosopher Blaise Pascal stated about it. He said, all men seek happiness. That is, without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So why do people commit suicide? 
Pascal says that they do it because they cannot live without being happy. We demand happiness. We even fight for it. God created us that we might be happy. Now follow this train of thought one more step. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval of giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is an appointed consummation. She can't be happy without praising something. We cannot be happy in God without praising Him. See, imagine I came home tonight and, and bought my wife, Kathy, a bouquet of flowers. She looks at me and says, well, it's not my birthday or anniversary or a special day. And what if I said, yeah, but honey, it's my duty to do this on occasion. See, that would not honor her. It would be an attempt to honor myself as someone who does his duty. She'd be rightly upset, and I'd probably say, well, you know, women who can understand them anyway. But imagine I said, you know, I bought you these flowers because as I thought of you today, I was overwhelmed with your beauty and the joy that you have brought me and the love I have for you, and I just needed to find a way to express that to you. See, show me someone who cannot enter into worship with joy, and I will show you someone who has never delighted themselves in the Lord. We were created for relationship with God, and that relationship expresses itself in worship, in the sounds of the pleasure that we find in our God. And when we come back, let me take those expressions of pleasure and bring them to a consummation, that place where we will worship God in heaven, in fact, even more so. That place, as the Bible says, we will see God face to face in all His glory. In the next two months, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld will be a key speaker at the Promise Keeper Canada Quest Conferences. This is an incredible opportunity to equip, encourage, and challenge men of all ages in their daily walk with Christ. And Back to the Bible Canada is excited to do its part. So join us in Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. All dates and information for registration can be found at promisekeepers.ca. Or if you're interested in all the Bible teaching resources available to you through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or our young adult ministry in doubt, or to support this ministry committed to Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget, this month only, Dr. Newfeld's new series, Celebration of Marriage, is available on CD as our free ministry gift. Just ask. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca. Revelation 22 verse 4 says, They will see His face. I've often struggled with what that could possibly mean. Here's why. If I were to ask you, what does God look like, what would you say? Does God have a body as we have? Or is there any matter or physicality to God? Or is he pure energy? Or what are we talking about when we talk about God? According to the Bible, none of those things are right. In John 4.24, Jesus said, God is spirit. Now, what can that mean? 
As we read through the Old Testament, we see the matters spelled out. For instance, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the second command forbids us making a carved image or any likeness in heaven or on earth made to represent God. Then in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12, we're told that when God gave the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, we are told, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. That gets repeated in the form of a command later in verses 15 to 17. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies on the air, and so on. From these passages, we learn that we should not think of God as being a physical form of any kind. God is essentially different from all that he has created. To make an image, any image, is to fundamentally misrepresent God. Indeed, when the second command is given, God adds the words, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous for his honor and jealous that he is not misrepresented. He is angered when we think of him other than he is. And so God, unlike us, has no physical body. He's not made of matter like the rest of his creation. We should not think of him as energy, vapor, air, or space. And we certainly should not think of him as a man of some sort. Instead, as Jesus taught us, God is spirit. Now, whatever we think that means, it does mean that he is unlike all other things. Think of it this way. Much of what we learn is learned by making comparisons. A child gets a book on animals and soon learns that birds and mammals and reptiles fit into categories. A stork looks different from a hummingbird, but they share certain characteristics, and it is in comparison with things that we build categories and begin to understand our world. But there are no categories in which God can be compared. He is unlike every other thing. That's why Isaiah 46 verse 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? See, there's nothing like God. To say that God is spirit is to say that God is not made of matter, has no parts or dimensions, and that we are unable to see him with any of our bodily senses. There is, in fact, nothing for us to see. Now, I know some of us will point to passages such as Isaiah 6, where the prophet says, I saw the Lord. But as John tells us in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning he saw Christ's glory. See, the miracle of Christ is that God the Son, who, like all three members of the Trinity, is also spirit, clothed himself in human flesh and dwelt among us. He took upon himself the form of a man. That in itself requires a great deal of care as we seek to understand the miracle of the incarnation. But of this we must remain firm. The Father has no form and there is nothing for our eyes to see. All of that to say, what can it possibly mean that in heaven, as John tells us in Revelation 22 verse 4, that we shall see his face? See, I've pondered that mystery for a long time. I do know that earlier in Revelation 4, where John saw a door opened in heaven and he speaks of a throne, but when he speaks of him who is on it, he mentions brightness and colors, but he avoids any description of the Almighty himself. 
Then he mentions lightning and thunder and then the four living creatures who all cry holy. And again, I am led to a fascinating mystery. What will I see when the book of Revelation tells me that I will see God? Perhaps Augustine, the great theologian of the fourth century, had it right. It is possible, it is indeed most probable, that we shall then see the physical bodies of the new heaven and the new earth in such a fashion, he wrote, as to observe God in utter clarity and distinctness, seeing him everywhere present and governing the whole material scheme of things. Augustine goes on to say he will be seen by everybody by means of bodies wherever the eyes of the spiritual body are directed with their penetrating gaze. Now, perhaps Augustine was right. Perhaps there will be an ability to see the hand of the Father in all things in a way that we never thought possible before. But Revelation does seem to bring us to a place, a central focus of worship. Whether that place is seen in the colors of jasper and carnelian and emeralds and of an amazing sense of light that makes all other light but a facsimile of the real thing, this we yet have to wait for, but we will be there to see him. And around the throne will be the 24 elders, I think encompassing both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, bringing unity to all of God's people. There will be four living creatures that surround the throne, representing all the created order. There will be the 144,000, a group I will not explain here today. And then there will be a great multitude that no one can number. We might all remember Genesis 15, that day when God and Abraham went for a walk on a clear, cloudless night. God had said to Abraham, look into the sky and count the stars. If you have been out of a city and there's absolutely no light pollution, you know what that looks like. The Orion, the Bear, the Pleiades, the vast Milky Way, that seemingly endless, brilliant set of lights. God said, go ahead, Abraham, count the stars. And Abraham says, I can't. There are too many. And God responds, so shall your offspring be. And so when we stand before the throne, Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know exactly how this matter plays out, but if I might, I would like to share what in my imagination I see. When we live on the new earth, We will learn to do all things to the glory of God. Whether it's creating or building or art or politics or science, every activity will showcase the excellency of our God. But then there will be those sacred moments. Psalm 120 to 134 contains a group of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. They were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem during the high times of worship, like Passover or the Day of Atonement. As the pilgrims approached Jerusalem... That as the city came into sight, and as they went down the Kidron Valley and ascended on the other side, these psalms represented their singing, their great joy as they approached the holy city. And they would sing like Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or like Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Or like Psalm 124. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed up alive. And as the pilgrims sang, all was filled with joy. See, I imagine that in the world to come. Perhaps there are special days for worship. 
and we will approach the holy city and break out into songs of joy and anticipation and with all the redeemed stand before the one who sits on the throne and the lamb and with a collective roar from the countless throats of multitudes we will shout to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb and we will sing a glorious song more than anything else that's where i want to be John, thanks for your message today. You know, I'm thinking about a person with long white hair, a long white robe, uh, a long white beard. I mean, it's the image of God that I had perhaps when I was a young child. Uh, And many of us even continue to have that image today. Is there something wrong with that? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, it's a, I'm reminded when you, when you share that of how uh, at one point in time in Israel's history, when the temple was invaded, and uh, this is after the ark was long gone, and people actually came into the Holy of Holies and found nothing there. And that's because our God is not seen with human eyes. And that's why in ancient Israel, they were always forbidden from making an image, a graven image that was made to look like a deity. Uh, It's not that God dislikes art, it's that this is not God. And so one of the things that we learn as believers is to root out of our hearts all idolatrous pictures of God and replace them with God's self-disclosure of himself, and then to content ourselves and delight ourselves in that. Do you think uh, having an image of God like that is maybe some of the reasons why we put limitations on God? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, any, you know, any God that's, that's spatially located is a God that's only at one place at one time. And, of course, we know that our God is everywhere present, and uh, there are so many other limitations that we put because our human minds love idols so dearly. I know it was Kelvin that said the human mind is an idol factory. We produce one idol after the next. The only, only possible you know, remedy for this situation is to continually get back to the Word. Could it also be a reason in some respects why we struggle with pride because we sort of uh, portray God as being like us? Yeah, we sure do. And so we would be like God, right? So that's the temptation that was given to Eve in the garden. Uh, So whenever we hear ourselves saying, I like to think of God as, uh, we should immediately repent and say, it's not about how I like to see God. It's how God has declared himself. And with that, O Lord, show me to delight myself in that very thing. That's a great word. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. For this month only, we want to offer all of our listeners Dr. Neufeld's new series, Celebration of Marriage, on CD for free. Just ask, no strings attached, only the opportunity to hear and make available to whoever quality Bible teaching on marriage. Dr. Neufeld offers five sessions on marriage, two teaching programs discussing the covenant and intimacy of godly marriages, and three sessions offering practical guidelines and direction as Dr. Neufeld conducts insightful interviews with married couples discussing preparation for marriage and dating, battling the pitfalls of marriage in our society today, and how to redeem a marriage in free fall. This is an important series, so ask for your free copy today for yourself, a couple preparing to be married, a couple in crisis, or for your church library. Ask for Celebration of Marriage by calling 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca.